netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Thanks for taking the time to download our podcast today. I'm John Montgomery. Over the weekend, The Magnificent Seven opened up and dominated the United States box office, taking in over $35 million in ticket sales. And our subject this week is that film, and it's a conversation with Sean Devereaux, who served as VFX supervisor for The Magnificent Seven. Now, Sean co-founded Zero VFX, a Boston-based firm, back in 2010. He's actually been a really good friend of FX Guide over the years, and in fact, fxphd.com, our sister training site where we do visual effects training, as well as uh, 3D and motion graphics. He's taught courses for us uh, there in the past. But what's interesting about this film, and, and I will call it a film, because what's interesting about it is it was shot on film, with anamorphic lenses, uh, as well as the fact that the visual effects are all about supporting the story. Well, generally they are uh, always that, but in this case, they're invisible effects. Uh, Hopefully you actually don't see the effects. Uh, They did a tremendous amount of work in this film, and you'll hear from Sean about the breadth and depth of that here coming up. Really interesting considerations, both creatively and technically, uh, in dealing, um, among other things, with shooting on film and anamorphic when we're getting more and more used to only working with digital acquisition. So let's go ahead and cross that conversation now. It's uh, Sean Devereaux speaking with Mike Seymour. I know Sean on the line now. How are you, mate? How are, how's things? Uh, very good, Mike. Good to talk to you again. So uh, uh, I, I really enjoyed the film. I'm a, I'm a bloke, so of course I enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's a really interesting film in one sense because the story itself doesn't cry out for, you know, star stations or massive kind of, um, you know, New York crumbling kind of things. Um mm-hmm. But I imagine that there was an enormous amount of work to do just kind of spread out through the film as opposed to kind of one mega sequence. Is that the case? It is. Um, And there was 900 visual effects shots, which is the most um, we've been involved with at zero since we started the company, and uh, which was fun. And and the the key with a film like this is you're right. If you see any visual effects or notice any visual effects, we've really done a disservice. Uh, I mean, this was definitely tried. This is a gritty film. It's realistic. It's a Western. Um, you know, it, it can't have that that digital polish in a way. It needs to feel completely like everything was in camera. Um, and we even got to shoot on film. And we got to shoot with anamorphic lenses and, and do things like that we rarely get to do these days. So it was, uh, it was important that the aesthetic be film and not, you know, the big space stations or anything like that. So I'm going to ask you about those anamorphic um, lenses in a second because I think they pose some really interesting technical issues. But just in terms of your body of work personally, you've done a bunch of films that I'd sort of classify in that um, invisible effects. Now, not exclusively, of course, because you've mm-hmm. um, certainly Zero did uh, stuff on Ghostbusters, which hardly falls in that category. But, you yeah. know, Southpaw and other things. Yeah. Um, if you have a preference, if a script lands on your desk right now, like tomorrow for a job, um, Leaving aside, of course, the director who may or may not be uh, someone you want to work with, what's the mm-hmm. thing that uh, you're looking for? Do you like that kind of work or do you want sort of right now big digital um, single shot that's going to take six years to kind of do? No, I love I love invisible work. I love focusing on the story and telling the story and not saying, look at me, look at me. Um, not that I don't enjoy those movies as an audience member. I really do. Um, but as far as the work that I like to do and that we've kind of geared zero towards, it's, it's the invisible work. Um, it's the stuff that, you know, there's 900 visual effect shots in Magnificent Seven, and I, I think very few people will pick out any um, that could be um, when some of them are completely digital. And 
there's a, that's just kind of where I come from. Like, you know, from the early days of digital domain, it was kind of the work we started that I had started with as an artist there. And it's what I'm drawn to, um, uh, as far as just being able to, you know, I love showing people after what we did, you know, you can watch the whole movie and then go, Oh, Hey, what'd you guys do? And there's really no clear answer. And then we show the real of the before and afters and people's minds are blown. And I, I love the kind of magician kind of man behind the curtain feeling of that. And, um, and really we're, you know, we're, our job is to tell a story and not, um, necessarily, you know, be the, the main event or the main focus. Um, and again, I, I enjoy that work as a, as an audience member. I love those kind of films. I've certainly done them in my past, but you know, I definitely prefer when you didn't know we did anything. Um, so, so on looking back at some of those films for a second, like everything from Time Machine to I don't know, um, iRobot to Transformers, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like obviously they're they're effects that you can tell, but the other thing yeah. that's the hallmark of them is that obviously they're driven primarily by three D and and uh, you know digital. I mean, a Transformers film is all about getting that uh, that three D happening. The compositing is key. In this yeah. film, though, is it really the case that it's primarily a compositing problem? Is this because that's obviously your background? Yeah, I mean, I started as a compositor, so that was my my early years before I became a supervisor. And it's, I mean, every film is comp heavy. I mean, you can't even have a digital film that's not comp heavy, of course. But, um, and we really found zero on my strengths, of course, as a compositor. Um, But really, we've we've grown so much that we, you know, we've added more and more three D talent, and now our three D team is equal size, if not bigger, than our compositing team. Um, And you know, being a compositor, especially. a place where, you know, where Nuke was founded at Digital Domain, you know, we got used to, not that we didn't have a great 3D team there, but you get used to like, okay, here's what we have, let's make it work. And you, and you make it work through, through the tools and techniques and the people around you and a lot of it. And you don't kick a lot of stuff back to 3D. You kind of, you make it work with Nuke and, and, um, that's kind of how we started zero, but we realized that at some point that becomes less efficient and you need to get the 3D to be super buttoned up. So in a film like this, although, um, certainly comp is important, you know, and what I would have typically done with a 2D map painting of mountains, we, you know, do now with 3D mountains that, uh, you know, which are rendered through Maya or in some cases a projection system that's complex enough and, and really virtually 3D and nuke. So it's really, it was kind of equal in this film. We had as big a team in 2D as we did in 3D. Okay. And then the other point that I just sort of skipped over is this idea of the directors you're working with. And I mean, in addition to who you've worked with in the past, IMDb lists your sort of upcoming films. And it's, uh, I only mention it because Denzel Washington is, um, is listed as um, uh, for Fences. But then you've got uh, P- Peter Berg listed for Patriot's Day, who I've just seen his, um, his uh, Deepwater Horizon. And then uh, Catherine Bigelow is, uh, so th- these are an amazing group of directors, including, of course, the director of Magnificent Seven. Yes, Antoine. Yeah, uh, we've been very blessed to work with these guys. I mean, they, you know, story and character is so important to them. And um, Antoine Fuqua, honestly, I mean, this is my third film with him, um, and it's that partnership has been one of the greatest collaborations of my career, and it continues to be. Uh, and that, you know, working with someone like Antoine, his level of excellence is high, and he expects you know your best. And one of the one of the things he does a lot. Uh, especially with a big shot, um, we're screening it together at the end, and you know, especially we get close to the delivery, we're almost done, and I'm showing him a shot that we're certainly proud of, and uh, you know, he can easily say, "Yep, that's fine, that's great, I love it," but he can tell when I, um, I think he can tell when I want to do a little more, and he'll say, "Sean, is that your best? Is that everything you guys have?" 
And uh, it's a great question because it, it drives me. It's like I can't say yes. I know I want to. I want more time, or I want you know more resources to do it. So he's good at pushing us that way, and that's really been a great relationship um, for us as as a studio and for me as a as someone that just enjoys making films. And that you know he has relationships with other directors like Peter Berg and and other people that you know um, our reputation grows from that and. Um, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, every, every job comes from a relationship in this industry, really. Um, and so we get to work with these great directors, um, because of, you know, the ones we work with and do a great job for, keep working with. And then those people have friends. So your credit on this is, is really high. Like it's a full screen credit above the, the main end run. So let's assume for a second, you're in on those early discussions and without being gossipy, was there a sense that this film had, uh, any kind of shadow cast of um, the Magnificence from the Kurosawa uh, Seven Samurai or the, of course, uh, Magnificent Seven um, that was shot, whatever that was, like uh, decades ago. Like, do either of those films feature in any way in terms of your visual language or were it just you were aware that you were in sort of a pantheon of great films? Oh, no, completely. I mean, it was part of the conversation from the very first conversation. Um, we can't ignore the past, um, and we didn't want to. And then Seven Samurai in particular is um, such a beautifully constructed film that it was – you know, you can't ignore it. And to try to would be a service. And you also can't repeat it, and we weren't trying to do that either. We can't remake it exactly the same, and, and neither with the, the John Surges film. And but to say they, but we discussed them constantly. We referred to them all the time. Um, we did a lot of concept work on this film, more than we've ever done in any other project we've done at Zero. And a lot of that was like, all right, well that's a good idea. Let's look at it. Let's look at another frame and let's compare it to something from Seven Samurai or Sturges. Let's look at the framing. Let's look at the the height of the mountains. Let's let's look at this. And um, you know, a lot of a lot of good things come from that. I mean, uh, for me. One of the biggest conversations that came out early on was what I feel like Seven Samurai did that the Sturges film um, didn't do as well was just the design of the town that we're saving. Um, in Magnificent in Seven Samurai, the town has clearly been there for hundreds of years, a place loved by generations. That's a place that's been cared for, although of me, it's of meek nature. It, yeah. it certainly was well-maintained. And in the John Sturges version, it's a much less-maintained town, which for me as a viewer – uh, you know, as a teenager watching it, I enjoyed it. But then analyzing it now for reference, it came down to me like, well, really, what were we fighting for? The town, not that it wasn't meek, and that makes sense because it should have been meek, but it wasn't maintained. And, and maintaining something doesn't necessarily take resources except for you know, blood, sweat, and tears. So I felt like we needed a town that was beautiful and something you wanted to protect and something that was fought to even create. And that's what I think one of the main goals was and what they did well in Seven Samurai, or in Seven Samurai, right? And, um, and Antoine basically said the same thing. We had the same conversation where we talked over each other and we're like, yeah, we need to have a town that we care about and that has a story. And, and that was a big part of what happens when you look back at what they did in the past and, and how we create something for the future. I must say, I know it's not a visual effects point, but just because I know you, the, the other thing I loved about this film, the, your film, is that like Seven Samurai, there was this lovely sort of subtext of trust and not trust and, and respect for the sort of the seven that come. Um, you know, it wasn't just a uh, an action kind of thumping chest kind of shootout. Yeah. Um, from a visual point of view, it isn't a big film because it isn't a big canvas because it is a small town, right? Like, I mean, yes. And I sometimes feel like films like that can feel little, even though, of course, you know, it's got a lot of action and stuff. Just because we're so used to these mega films. That was the anamorphic. Now getting back to that, was that a part of that sense of giving it this kind of bigness 
even though, of course, we're not talking about a major metropolis or, for that matter, you know, tens of thousands of people? It definitely was. I mean, we really, I mean, I wouldn't say, I, this is probably too strong way to say it, but we definitely fantasized about the idea of, like, if we were going to shoot this back then in the 1960s when they shot Magnificent Seven, how would we do it? And what kind of the techniques would we use? And anamorphic lenses was certainly number one. And then, you know, we shot on a lot of cranes. We had a lot of crane movement, a lot of crane work um, to give the, the camera the feel of the olden times. Where right now, especially a film like this, there's so much handheld, shoulder-mounted um, kind of just excitement that gets, gets some blurry action kind of just kind of in a way it can be beautiful. And when it's done poorly, it can be noise. Um, and by shooting it, you know, in an older style, um, almost as if the cameras were still really heavy, like they used to be, and, and you couldn't move them in the way that we do now. Um, See, it's, it's funny kind of, you should say that because when I was watching the film early on, there's a stagecoach shot. It's really early on, uh, mm -hmm. attached to the side of the stagecoach, which yes. is almost like a GoPro feel. And I was like, oh, we're going to completely change the cinematic style of the Western and make it kind of, you know, something else. And then we seem to leave that and not go back to that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it as a shot, but it was just like, yes, these big, wide, epic um, vistas played strongly. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I think that shot, that, that was one Antoine designed himself. And, it, and I like it in the movie, the way it's cut in, because it also, because I think it, it needed to break up a little bit of the, the way the camera moves, especially in the first half hour where this, every camera move feels like this big sweeping crane shot in a way. And it was, it was kind of, I think, a little nod to the ending that it does get tighter and closer, especially as the battle begins. So to have a shot that kind of – it almost felt like a battle in a way of having it there, the way it shook and the, and the wagons shaking and the horses and the action kind of involved in that shot where there's actually no battle happening. I think it was a good – tonal nod to what's going to come in the end of the film because I think at some point with the modern audience they kind of expect that blurry noisy action to an extent and um, although we never really get to that so it really is kind of everything's kind of composed and, and carefully and not you know throw some stuntman at a thing and make the move around and whoever falls down on the ground you know he won uh, or he lost so that I think was a, a good way to just kind of show hey we are getting there it is going to be a lot of action we're not doing everything with a big camera crane sweeping move but um, um, but that's what we're um, but the majority of the film is going to be a very careful, methodical, thought-out movement. On a technical level, the problem with uh, anamorphic lenses, I mean, there's a couple. Like, if, they can go, if you go wide open for any particular reason, you stand a yep. chance of getting kind of like a flary kind of thing. But also you have this shearing sometimes that, that when you are, um, you know, not necessarily using – I mean, look, obviously you're using Panavision stuff and it's really good, but if you use some lenses, you can actually – end up with the image slightly sheared, not in a um, rolling shutter sense, but literally from the optics. Yeah. And that makes the tracking just a nightmare. What was the yeah. technical stuff on this like? It, it was it was relatively good. I mean, we had we had enough prep that we were able to, you know, do the integration properly and 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 do it right. But there was certainly, I mean, a lot of these shots were full open and they were big because they were so wide and um, they're huge crane shots and we're putting mountains in. So everything edge to edge was a visual effect. And um, there was definitely a lot of problems and not even problems of not getting it right, but also looking at something and going, well, that looks weird. Is that, are you guys sure that's right? And then screening it on the big screen as much as we can to go, yeah, I mean, it, it looks weird, but you're right. If the mountains were there when we shot them, this is what they would have looked like. And this is the, the amount of distortion that they get pulled and, and bent. And, um, that was, it was interesting too, because I hadn't shot on film in a while. I think American Hustle was the last one before this. And, um, and we didn't shoot anamorphic in that. So it was, it was, a, it kind of had to reset my eye a little bit after shooting digital for so long. Um, because even when you uh, shoot anamorphic with digital, the image itself is so clean and so grain free that you kind of, 
it, it's less, it's harder to, it's easier to handle in a way, but shooting on 35 millimeter film, um, and anamorphic and trying to wrap your head around the new look of it. It was, and it's not a new look, it's an old look, but it, it was felt like a new look because we hadn't done it in so long. So, so obviously the film looks great and, and, and I'm, the next comment isn't about it not looking great. It looks great. Having said that, anything shot on film and especially anamorphic compared to what you can get off a, you know, a modern Red or a Alexa is soft mm-hmm. by our eyes, kind of soft. Yes. And yet uh, there's a shot at the early sequence. It's tracking along um, parallel to the camp and it was just drippingly gorgeous. And I remember yeah. thinking, wow, how much of that stuff is, are you getting in camera? Were you adding anything to these shots? Um, you know, because it was just like I was thinking you would have spent all morning just waiting for like magic sort of hour in the morning to just get this one backlit smoke coming up, campfire tracking shot. It was just beautiful. Yeah, I mean, Mauro Fiore uh, is a phenomenal cinematographer. Um, so that's a big part of it. We had an amazing crew. Um, and yeah, sometimes we did wait to get the right shot and um, sometimes they're enhanced digitally. And um, I don't know particularly exactly which shot you're talking about, but... Um, it was uh, not. It was a nothing shot in, the scripts, in a script sense. I just remember mm-hmm. looking at it and thinking that is just... Like there's nothing that you would change in the shot, right? Like it was just yeah. clean and nice and it was just these golden colors, backlit smoke from the campfires or oh, in yes. the morning. It was just, you know, mountains behind, just looked great. And you, yeah. you had no mountains, right? Because you had like, you were in Baton Rouge, right? Yeah, we were. So there was, if you see a mountain in the film, except for a handful of scenes, they're all digitally added. Um, so that's was, a lot of roto somewhere oh, because yeah. people stand up in front of mountains. Yeah, a lot of roto. We did a lot of CG trees too to avoid even bothering rotoing the trees. Um, it didn't make sense to roto the tree line where you can just replace them with a CG tree. Um, and actually the hardest problem with the mountains was the we kind of had to come up with a hybrid design, right? Because we shot in Santa Fe and in Baton Rouge. In uh, Santa Fe, you know, these gorgeous, very rocky mountains um, with very minimal vegetation. And Baton Rouge has thick, dense foliage and, and green, green, green vegetation, um, but no mountains. So we kind of had to make up our own and, and we kind of affectionately called it Santa Fe, Louisiana, um, which is mountains that are rock forms similar to Santa Fe, but um, have vegetation all the way almost to their peak um, and uh, trees at the bottom of them that slowly get to bushes and then almost to grass um, at the top and then snow caps too, which was interesting to put snow caps in because every day we shot in Baton Rouge, it was 115 degree heat and, you know, we built the set, we built the town. So it wasn't, <laughs> there was nowhere inside to go. So you were just miserably hot all day long. And then to put snow caps in and post, which is Antoine's idea, I love the look of it, but at the time it felt so wrong because it was so hot when we shot. And obviously seeing the film, it looks great. No one would know, but um, it, uh, it was definitely a part of the challenge. Because we've been talking about the town, which of course is where the, you know, the, the final showdown is. And of course it's the central character of the story. But there is quite a lot of traveling there, the four-day journey um, when the seven are coming together. And that yes. covers a lot of different terrain and... Um, was that again just shot in different places, or was that again enhanced? Um, both. Some of them were shot, some of those uh, shots or scenes were shot in Baton Rouge, and some of them were shot in Santa Fe. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of that was the that was the fun actually because and we shot in Santa Fe second, and um, I was prefer we shot there first because it would have helped us kind of design even composition for what the mountains could be it's just different to you know we obviously scouted santa fe but to go and live there for three weeks and shoot there it, it, you get a different sense of the place and then you kind of get used to the land and what you're seeing every day um 
So I would have, I don't know if I would have done anything differently, but it just would have been nice to kind of inform the concept phase of, of Baton Rouge and the mountains there, uh, and kind of get us there because it was such a, it's, they're so starkly different. Um, I don't think there's really a place, two places on the planet that could be as different as Santa Fe and Baton Rouge. Um, so to making find, life easy on yourself. Yeah. So to bring them together and do so in a way that was real. And again, that luckily I think we achieved it. No one notices we did anything. Um, it was a big challenge. I mean, we spent, we spent over six months determining the look of the mountains, especially the ones near town because they needed to be expansive. They needed to be picturesque. They also needed to show us where the mine was and they needed to be close enough to the town and encompassing enough that you couldn't quickly escape once the battle begins. So it was kind of a lot of story points to hit in a place where there are no actual mountains, um, which was definitely challenging. But again, I think at the end it came out, came out really well. I'm really happy with, with what that was. So now before I go on, just give me the structure of this, because obviously you're effectively the film VFX suit, but Rob and Daniel were the co-supervisors inside Zero. How does that, that kind of play out? Yeah, so I was involved from pre-production through post, just um, basically as if I was the studio hired yeah. supervisor, because I was. I just wasn't, but I was also attached to a, to a facility. And Rob led our team in Los Angeles, and Dan led our team in Boston. Um, and they worked together, of course, Um Intimately, because the some of the, the similar type of shots went back and forth. Um, Your LA team's been growing, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It has. We I mean, we started only in November of 2015, and um, it's not even a year yet, and we already have um, almost 30 people there. So it's much quicker than we expected, and um, but it allows us to do multiple projects and, and diversify and, and keep keep it and get really good talented people too, because I think we kind of soaked up every talented, amazing person anywhere near Boston has now been sucked up into our, <laughs> to our company. So it was, it was hard to get more experienced people. Um, cause we have 55 in Boston right now. Right. And, um, it's just, you know, unless someone has an, uh, an actual connection to Boston, some way that they're from there or their spouse is from there or there's significant others there. It's, it was, it's hard to recruit people there. And especially now that we've kind of found almost all the people that <laughs> have links to Boston and are also talented, <laughs> Um, it was kind of the choice to, to open LA and, and kind of tap a new market, um, which in a way is a similar situation to when we opened Boston. When we opened Boston, it was, you know, because I just wanted to work in Boston. It wasn't a business decision. And, you know, a lot of people asked Antoine Fuqua the first time he met me, he's like, what are you doing in Boston, dude? Um, and it's true. It's like, what are we doing out here? There's no industry here. Um, so we had to build it. And in a way, LA, you know, is, is quickly shrinking with the amount of visual effects artists that are leaving to go to Vancouver and Montreal and, and New Zealand and uh, London and other places. So in a way, we kind of have a similar problem where there's not as much industry there. But with LA, it's, it's much more helpful because we're kind of been able to reserve and hold people there that have bought houses that don't necessarily want to move yet or move at all. And um, it's kind of been a really great kind of perfect match of getting some really amazing experienced people, which I think when I lived there 12 years ago, I'm sorry, eight years ago, um, it would have been much harder to get so many talented people in one office at such a new small company because there would have been so much more work there. It would have been too competitive when you're competing against Imageworks and Rhythm and Hughes and DD and all these people that are like, well, we're comfortable, we're going to stay here. But to be able to you know, get this amazing team we have and you know, I'm, as a business owner, I'm just proud that they get to stay where they want to live. Um, and that's, that's why I'm in Boston. I want to I want to do the work I love where I where I want to live, and, and LA office has kind of become that same thing for others. So it's been definitely a point of pride for us. Now there are a lot of cowboys in this film because the army appears, and well, I say the army, the army that he raises, not the real army, 
Um, and, uh, you know, they attack the town and that's the big thing at the end. Um, did you have that many people on horseback? And for that matter, does the principal cast actually ride? I mean, it's not a foregone conclusion that these actors would all be able to ride and they all needed to ride. I honestly don't know who could ride before we started filming or if they had experience riding, but I know that during the film, every cast member rode their own horses and rode fast and rode well. And I was, I've never seen a more dedicated cast or crew really. I think honestly the, the extreme heat kind of made us all cling together for survival because it was so hot and we had no choice but to like grip onto each other and, and hold on. And, and I was blown away by the talent of the crew, I mean of the cast rather, not just of their ability to act, which I think many of them are, you know, well-known great actors, but their dedication. I mean, Denzel was on his horse at least four or five hours every single day. And so was Chris and Vince. I mean, they walked, they'd walk around set with their horses. Um, it was constant and they were their horses. It was, they were, they were personal. It became, they became friends by the time we were done shooting. Um, and we had a ridiculously huge and amazing stunt team. I think we had the most horse falls in the history of cinema. Over 800 horse falls happened on this film. So, so uh, they were all there, those guys that uh, come up and ride in like it was just an army of stuntmen and, and riders. Most of the time, yes. Wow. So even just corralling, I think that's the right word, that much stuff so that you get what you need for visual effects must have been difficult, right? Cause like, uh... Yeah, I mean, it was it was all well planned. We had multiple plates certainly run um, where we'd run multiple times. And, and the heat was it, the heat was so bad too that, you know, we had to be very cautious of how many runs the horses could do. I mean, in some cases, they could only run once or twice a day in one of those big long sprints because it just wasn't, it wasn't healthy for anyone to run in, in the kind of heat for too long. Um, but you know, the we had very amazing. We had amazing horse wranglers that they're always most biggest motivation was making sure the horses were safe and no horses were were killed or injured at all in the play, in the film. Which again, just being someone that got to kind of sit there and watch this stuff was amazing. Um, how well trained and and how phenomenal the stunt team and the and the animal team was. It was amazing. But there must have been uh, yes. some digital work because, like, I mean, you blew up. You know, when they're in the in the trenches, you you had. I mean, we just couldn't possibly do that to horses. At least I don't assume you could, unless it was some no. No, there's definitely – once the explosion occurs in the smoke, there's definitely a lot of digital enhancement. Um, we did use uh, some form of plate photography for almost everything. There's about a dozen all-CG shots, but for the most part um, – you know, and and really, that's what I like. I like to enhance. If we can shoot something, I want to shoot it, uh, even if it's just a basis to say, "Here, here's the here's the plate," and we're going to put horses or stuntmen or um, explosions in it. It's it's really good to shoot something. And um, you know, we had a great second unit as well, so it was great to kind of get all that. And um, like to actually for a film like this that's this big, with this many people and this many stunts and this you know seven characters and all these townspeople in the town itself to only have a, a dozen CG shots, I, I kind of take as a point of pride for sure. There are some interior shots. I mean, there are some saloon stuff at the beginning. There's obviously, you know, various dialogue and, and stuff when they're eating and things. Was, was there um, a studio component to this that was done at a location or did you tend to – was there some kind of built thing in the environment? So I'm just wondering about what happened outside the windows and stuff. Yeah, no, uh, it's, you would you would have hoped so, so we could have got out of the heat once in a while, but no, we shot uh, on location for everything. We built every town. Derek Hill, the production designer, along with his team, Sean Jennings, the art director, um, they built the town and they built the interiors. That saloon in the beginning is a real exterior and a real interior that was built in the middle of nowhere in Baton Rouge. And the town, um, about half the buildings had interiors we could film in, which is a pretty remarkable thing because they built the entire town in seven weeks. Um, wow. It was remarkable. So we, yeah, we had no studio work, no green screen out windows. It was, we shot practical. 
um, which honestly was it was a really I'm sure it cost money to build, but it helped with the visual effects budget because we were able to then focus on the mountains, and the explosions, and and the big um, you know the big action pieces, and not worry about blue screen out a window. Which honestly, at the end of the day, even in a film like this size, the budget's always tight for every department. And um, did that facilitate? Did that facilitate multiple cameras on action sequences because you could shoot in any direction, or was it oh. really? Yeah, we shot and we shot with and some of the bigger action sequences of the battle. We had five or six cameras going at a time, all film, anamorphic, um, and yeah, placed everywhere, right in the mix, right next to the explosion, or where the explosion will end up being, uh, up in the steeple of the church, buried underground, um, kind of everywhere. No, I think you added some dust and stuff. I only asked that because like uh, being able to see what was going on and uh, composite behind it. You you did add some stuff in on top, right? Yeah, the explosion sequence, especially the amount of smoke and fog. Um, we we did have the special effects team, which also did a great job um, getting smoke in there. But the wind is is uncontrollable. Some takes the wind would blow, and the smoke would be gone as soon as we yelled action. And other takes the smoke would not go anywhere, and it would sit there too heavy. So, um, pretty much every shot in the battle, once the explosions go off, has some digital enhancement. Some of it being a little bit of extra wisp in the top left corner. Others it being completely. Uh, digital or 90% digital. Which brings me to the sort of main thing that you want out of a Magnificent Seven film, which is gunfights. And yes. <laughs> so now here's the thing. In, I don't know, let's pick a film, Star Wars, right? You get lasers going across screen that take, you know, several frames to get from camera right to camera left because the audience needs to know what's going on and you're in some far off distant galaxy. So you can just do that. Though, of course, traveling at the speed of light, you'd never record anything on, a, on, a, on any form of camera. Um, if you shoot an arrow, you can kind of get away with it because, you know, you kind of notionally think arrows don't move as fast, though I think they move pretty bloody fast. But yeah. but gunfire, it's really impossible unless you've got tracer lines in a kind of a modern day film to know where the bullets are going. And yet we as the audience have to have some idea what's going on. Otherwise, it just seems like a random heap. How did, how did you address that? Well, uh, I mean, the good thing is with these older guns, um, you know, there's a lot of black gunpowder that comes out of them. It's a very smoky fire discharge, which was really helpful because some of that we shot for real. They obviously had blanks, but they had the same powder they would have without the lead ball in it. So we had a nice smoke coming out of the gun, which was was certainly helpful. But what we also did, and there was, you know, thousands of bullet hits between the Gatling gun and the, um, you know, the individual guns of the of both the good side and the bad side. And every single bullet that's fired for the most part hits something. It hits, it hits the ground or it hits the wall next to the next to Chris Pratt or it hits a barrel or it hits a window and breaks it. We really tried to land every bullet, um, which in we thought we could do it with special effects and certainly the technology is there, but the reset time was so immense. And then to figure out continuity of, okay, now there's a hole in the wall that we don't want there. So... Now, although there were some amazing special effects bullet squib hits, um, especially when the Gatling gun came through, um, pretty much every time you see a, a bullet hit something, it was digital. Right. Now, let's say you've got Chris Pratt standing on a balcony and there's a bullet that hit right behind him. Did you shoot a practical on something and then comp that in or did you just get digital to do all the kind of little splays of wood or whatever that happens for a, an obvious bullet hit? We had a day of an element shoot, which really wasn't enough, um, and that had to that had to be everything. So bullet hits and and blood squibs and um, you know embers out of a fire and fire itself and all that stuff. So we didn't get as much as we wanted to. So in some cases, yes, we were able to use some elements, but most of the bullet hits themselves were uh, Houdini effects and 3D Max effects. Right, and, and 
And then you're throwing people off balconies and doing all the things that you want to see from a Western. Yeah. Was there rig removal? Because, I mean, a bunch of these guys are like, you know, flying in places that don't look very safe. Yeah. Um, there was, I don't think there was a single shot of rig removal, um, except really? maybe a stunt pad was removed. These, this stunt team was the best I've ever worked with. Wow. Um, one of the falls, I don't want to say the character's name, but one of the, there's a 40, 50 foot fall off the top of a church steeple. <laughs> well, I know which character that is, but okay, yeah, go on. It wasn't, uh, it was done without any wires. It was done with nothing but uh, some padding on the ground below. And it was one of the most impressive stunts I've seen um, because it has, he also had to hit three different surfaces and then hit the ground. So to do that control, but I, I know not exactly the show. It goes down the side of the, of the actual roof, right? Yes. Oh my God. I, I literally was about to ask you about that as a digital double shot because that's a really big, death and it looked completely to me like you'd have had to have solved that with a digital double because the guy seems to just hit things so hard it was it was phenomenal and we obviously right before we were rolling on it we were you know talking i was talking to the producers like all right so we can back this up as a digital double if it doesn't work i'm like yeah totally we're looking at it all nervous and the um the stuntman that did it um nick dashna his dad jay uh is it um jeff dashna was the stunt coordinator so his dad actually had a make jump off the church buddy and um and he did it, and I don't know how I don't know how Jeff Dashna, his dad, could look at it and even watch the take because it would have scared the heck out of me. It scared the heck out of me, and I wasn't his dad. And he does it one take, he nailed it. Um, he was ready to do it again. Uh, it was it was phenomenal. I know a few stunties, and the thing about a stuntie is they're not cowboys and they're not kind of fly by night show offs. They tend to be quite methodical, quite serious kind of people, in my opinion. And if they wouldn't, I guess they wouldn't survive. I think so too. I mean, and. And this is kind of this was a kind of whole family of stunt men that kind of drove this. And Chad Dashnot, the stunt co-coordinator, was um, also Jeff's son, and um, they had a lot to do. I mean, we had you know an hour of of battle to to, to coordinate and figure out, and um, you know it was and horses. I mean, the horses you can't tell them what to do unless you're actually sitting on them, and even then you got to hope for the best. So uh, it was that that was an impressive feat to get to watch and you know this is my first western so um it was also like man i can't believe i'm doing this every day and someone's paying me to do this this was this was an ultimate dream come true i mean it is the ultimate boy film isn't it i mean like it's just bloke central like you just yeah i mean it's yeah. there's something about cowboys <laughs> that just resonates as a um especially that that whole magnificent seven uh sort of against the odds completely outnumbered um kind of thing hey i'm just swinging back to the digital life for a second before i leave it so we, we talked about the the hits and stuff but obviously there are knives and arrows as well and i imagine falling with a fake arrow in your chest is considerably more dangerous um yes. so did you have to add and track those in or yes any projectile that you saw in the air was added digitally and most arrows that you saw even being put into a bow were added digitally as well um, it was too complex to kind of figure out the choreography of the timing of when an arrow needs to go or where an arrow needs to, yeah. you know, stay and things. Cause we would shoot long takes. Antoine loves long takes where you get to kind of really absorb the scene, let the actors play and not just do a quick, you know, 10 second roll and then go, okay, we got that one little piece. No, let's, 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 let's let some magic happen. And to do that, you need to, you know, allow for flexibility. So in most cases, if a knife or arrow is, is in the shot, it's digital. So that brings me to that planning question you, you said if there are long takes was there a choreography worked out in previs because i mean it it, it 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 never felt like i didn't know where people were i mean obviously occasionally it was a surprise deliberately but i mean like that early um 
uh, fight when, you know, like they, they first get into town. Yes. You have a clear orientation of who's where, but there are people coming out of buildings and somebody goes into a door and somebody else has to come out. And it's like, it's quite a choreography. It was impressive, and honestly, that was just that was all Antoine. Um, he he requested the that Derek Hill, the production designer, build a town. They built a mini town uh, model of the of Rose Creek that was you know you could have honestly shot as a miniature. It was so detailed. I think uh, it was gorgeous, and we'd spent. I think four days uh, total in pre-production, um, literally walking through every single beat and knowing where every single character was and determining uh, – and Antoine walking us through it every time. I mean, he repeated that, oh, man, probably three dozen times. So, so, every so just to be clear about this, he's got like a miniature model, like a desktop thing that he's walking this exactly. through? Yeah, it was probably built – I don't know. It was probably 15 feet by 20 feet and it was the entire town including the tent encampment. Wow. And we literally went through it constantly in miniature where we placed every character where they're going to be, when they're going to be there, when they're going to cross each other, um, when they're going to need backup from each other, you know, all that. So it was a constant thing through pre-production. And then, you know, before we shot the big battle scenes, we'd go, you know, the weekend before and we'd walk through it with the actors and the stuntmen and with Antoine and we'd walk through exactly every little beat again. Um, so by the time we shot it, honestly, there was no questions. It was just like, all right, you know, the, it was up to the actors to bring their own style and flair to it. But we knew it was happening. The cameras knew where they had to be, um, and it was uh, it was pretty impressive to see. And actually, and for me too, it was helpful to be a part of because it allowed us, because of so much good planning, we were able to contribute in ways that you know put resources where Antoine's vision was going to be best achieved. Yes, there is an amazing difference between patching in post and enhancing in post, isn't there? Oh, completely. When you're trying to make it up in post, especially with a film like this, that's when I feel like you'll get that blurry kind of noise. I call it noise. I said it before with the noisy action, which yeah. I think it was kind of the first Jason Bourne film that did it, which um, did it really well. And it's it was it made it visceral and more exciting because you didn't understand fully what was happening until someone falls and you figured out kind of the action. Um, a lot of films since have done that same technique, but not as well. So then it really became noise where it's literally just I'm just seeing motion blur and then I find out someone won the fight at some point. Um, and that was very important to Antoine and to all of us that that didn't happen here. So you know, I completely agree with you because there are, there are action films where you get one of those sequences happening and I almost feel like tell me when it's over and we can pick up the story again because this is just a set piece. Exactly. And the trouble is in this film if you'd fallen into that, there is no – I mean like the story is encapsulated in the action. So you can't be like we're going to go off and do a fight with second unit and come back to the, to the story in a minute. The story is yeah. the, the action. Yeah, these characters, I mean we, we care about them and we want to see – you know, we want to try to figure out why they're doing this. Like, it's it's a hard question to answer. I mean, yeah, they're tough guys, but why are they involving themselves with this? And the only way to show that, because guys don't talk about their feelings, <laughs> we need to see them. We need to see them sacrificing themselves and, and going all out to protect people that they don't know. And I think that's a major point of the, of the film, and that we can be great and we can be great together, and we can do things that aren't in our best interests for the better, for the good of all. You know. Yeah, which means that you ended up with both those wide vistas we've spoken about, but there are also those terrific, you know, just under the brim of the hat shots where you can't be more than a few inches off the front of the face. Yeah, I love those shots, and, and I, I I really love how Antoine and Maro shot this. It was it was it's it's again it's the same thing. It felt very, in a lot of ways, it feels like an older western, in the sense that it's it's got what you expect. It's got the you know the big low angles of a of a super strong cowboy. I mean Denzel Washington dressed in all black, jumping on a black horse. I mean it doesn't get more manly than that. Yeah. Um, 
but then to get to see where they're traveling to and, and to see, you know, the speed, I think, at which the action, you know, rolls out in this film is, is definitely, you know, one of, one of the more modern things that Westerns and the Sam Peckinpahs at the time, there, there wasn't the speed involved. It's kind of like we got faster with everything, including the gunsmanship and things like that. So um, I feel like for me as a fan of Westerns, it's, it was a kind of a perfect hybrid of, of, you know, nodding to the past and bringing it up to a new level that kind of sets a new bar for action you know, in a Western. Well, look, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us about it. And congratulations. I really, really enjoyed the film. Thank you, Mike. I sat there having a ball. Um, so thanks a lot. Always good to talk to you, man. All right. Thanks, man. See ya. Bye. Well, thanks, Sean, for taking time to chat with us. I really appreciate it. It's really great to hear ZeroFX is doing so well now with offices both in Boston and Los Angeles. Uh, really great work on the film and nice to hear uh, some of the insights behind the work that went into it. Well, that's it for this FX podcast. For my partners at FX Guide, Mike Seymour and Jeff Huser, thanks for taking time to listen. See ya. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.